This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The European Parliament last month approved rules to give gig economy workers some rights. The new regulation covers people who work a minimum of three hours a day or 12 hours over a four-week period. Workers will be given more predictable hours, allowed to refuse assignments outside of those hours, receive compensation for canceled work, and would not be restricted from working for other companies. European Union governments have three years to start enforcing the new rules, so how much will this change the gig economy, and could these types of labor protections catch on in other countries? With more on this decision, and if the impact, if this will have an impact elsewhere, we are joined here in studio by Gad Alon, who is a professor of operations, information, and decisions here at the Wharton School, as well as director of the Management and Technology Program. And also joining us on the phone, Valerio De Stefano, who is a research professor of labor law at the Institute for Labor Law at the University of Leuven in Belgium. Gad, great to see you. Thanks great, for coming in. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. Valerio, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I guess making this move and and the countries of the European Union stating we want to put these protections in place and the the level of protection, I think, can be questioned whether or not it's enough or not. But making this move, Gad, what, do you, what is the importance of, of this? Well, some of these are actually great uh, additions and some of them are, are going to be a little bit questionable, in my opinion. But really, I think what, what we see here, we have sort of a whole new economy that developed where we, in the past, we had this idea of freelancing, right? People always did freelancing, but we see it in a very different scale. And we see a different scale in terms of having platforms that facilitate that, from Uber to Lyft to people doing more a kind of handy type work, handyman and, and, and upwork that are doing more coding work. Yeah. Um, but we see also many more people participate in that. In the U.S., for example, 8% of the of people of, of the labor force already participated in a significant way in the gig economy. And so the question is, are, are the laws that pertain to contractors that assume that you are you own a small business when we come here to, to, to that community, to that kind of labor force, is that are they good enough to protect them? Um, because we know in general that people that work for the gig economy, as they work in a, in a way that is uncontrolled, so if, if there's really no control whatsoever on hours, on income or anything, um, many things suffer from that. I mean, so the healthcare suffer, uh, their family life suffer. Sure. So what we see here is an attempt to try to protect that. At the same time, I think there might be, if there is going to be overprotection, we might take something that, that works pretty efficiently in many ways, and we can talk more about that, and then we'll make it much less efficient, much less productive, much less enticing for people to join that. Valeria, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, first of all, the directive, the proposal of the directive is uh, at the same time more and less than a proposal on the gig economy. It is more because it's not just about the gig economy, it's not about uh, platforms, but it deals with a much broader problem in uh, European labor markets that we have um, a, con- a, a contingent workforce, what, that's what you, you will call that in the U.S., that includes zero-hour workers, casual workers, temporary workers. In some cases, they don't get enough protection. Um, so this is not just about platforms. Uh, it's uh, much more than that. And at the same time, it is not covering all the gig economy because the directive will apply only to those um, platform workers that in the European countries are classified as employees. 
So um, the idea that a pure freelancer is going to be covered by the directive, uh, there's not this risk. I mean, if you are a freelancer, uh, this directive doesn't affect you. Now, this can be a problem because in many cases, uh, some of these people are classified as freelancer, even if they don't have this kind of autonomy and independence that comes with uh, self, a true genuine self-employment. But certainly, uh, I wouldn't be afraid of uh, continuing this directive overprotective of uh, freelancers. What is true, though, is that the directive basically leaves to the member states to define who is an employee, but also um, provides that the European Court of Justice, so the Supreme Court of the EU, let's call it like that, can oversee. And if the countries have a too much restricted and narrow view on who is an employee, the court can intervene in uh, in this sense. So we will have to see how this, uh, this is going to play out uh, in the going forward. Valerio, we have talked uh, here in the United States about uh, having protections for gig economy workers over the last several months. How how big of an issue has it been in Europe for the most part? Well, in the last uh, couple of years, at least, this issue has really been skyrocketing in the debate. I mean, there's uh, conferences and debate on the platform economy uh, every every other week. I live in Brussels, and there's basically one, uh, there's really one every other week. Um, we have a, an issue with these workers. We see them in our cities. We we know that most of them are really not true freelancers and should get some minimum amount of protection. But there's a lot of people we don't think of when we when that should be actually included in our strategies on, on platform work. And I refer, for instance, to the people who work online. I mean, um, you talked before about uh, the one who work for uh, Upwork, the people who are online freelancing, and there's not so much of a debate on this, and there's not much debate on other people that work on platforms, such as the, the ones who provide services for households, domestic workers. Uh, a lot of them now work through platforms, uh, are channeled through platforms, and also controlled through platforms, and there's not so much of a debate on that. Most of the debate is uh, concentrated on um, the food delivery riders and uh, Uber drivers. We're joined here in studio by Gad Alano of the Wharton School, Valerio Di Stefano of the University of Leuven. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Gad, you mentioned when we started uh, this in your first comment that there are, obviously in these changes, some very good things. But you also hinted that there are probably some areas where lawmakers could have gone even farther. Like where? I mean, well, I'm not sure further, but I mean, I, I would say that one of the main things uh, that make that economy overall working is the fluidity of this market, uh, is the fact that people can choose between working for ride sharing for a while, then going doing a little bit of a household work, then continuing later on to do a delivery work for food. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I would say any attempt on one side to make sure that as they cross between these platforms, they are protected in terms of the number of hours they're on the road. Any situation where there are potentially negative externalities on the community, so protecting hours of work, protecting a minimum income are essential. At the same time, allowing for more fluidity, allowing for more people to do work across platforms, I think is something that I, I definitely find overall is useful. Which is interesting because I, I think when we've talked about crossing 
platforms or, or the conversation has been more here in the United States about people who both want to work for Uber and Lyft here right. in the United States. We really haven't even discussed a lot of somebody that may actually work for Uber on, on for four hours a day and work for a food delivery service another four hours a day. That's a unique component that I don't think has been touched on a lot. Yeah, but, but we do know that many of them are actually switching between these. And, and in fact, many of the people that are working for TaskRabbit that was purchased later on by IKEA were in fact Uber drivers that used the off time to be able to go and assemble a table that was purchased in IKEA in someone's apartment. And, and I think that's to some extent... We only see the beginning of this gig economy mm-hmm. because currently we see people commit to a large extent to an industry right. or commit to a firm for a specific amount of time. But in fact, the options are much more, much bigger than that. And, and, and so I think any attempt to try to facilitate and enable that, I think firms were initially trying to combat that. Right. Initially, Uber were trying to force you to work only for Uber and Lyft only for Lyft. Right. Um, by now, they gave up on that a little bit. Um, Amazon is still trying to do that with their Amazon Prime now, people, but I don't think it's very successful. So we do see people moving, but we get into bigger and bigger issues, which now there's no limit on how many hours I can work. And I don't need to be only present during peak time. I can actually spread that work. Beneficial in the short term, maybe some longer implications, longer term implications. Valerio, your thoughts? Well, um, I think that uh, it is true. People can uh, move from one job to another in the same uh, day, in the same day, or even in the same hour, for that matter. Uh, the question is that in some cases, though, uh, this is difficult to do in practice. If you are working online, you might be needing uh, to be online at the very amount, at the very time in which the best jobs are posted online, and this is not very easy to. Um, to match with other forms of work because you always have to be on call and ready to uh, answer to the best jobs that you find on these platforms because uh, otherwise uh, you, you get only the worst paid jobs on the platform. So if you, li- if you listen to crowd workers, to people that work entirely online, what they say is that, yes, it's true, it's great, I can work uh, from my home and I am more or less able to decide when I want to work. But at the same time, I have this constant pressure to be always connected, to be able to get the best uh, gigs on on the platform. And at the same time, if you work also offline, yes, you can work for Uber and then assembly and just assemble uh, furniture for IKEA. You can do uh, any of these things. But the, the point is, once you work for a certain platform, you are really subject in many cases to a lot of control from the platform, a lot of uh, incidents of the platform on the way you have to work, the way you have to provide your service to the client. And uh, even for a short period of time, that can amount, that can trigger uh, and meet the threshold of being classified as an employee in many, um, in many states ar- around the world. Now, I think that the directive is also an attempt to say, okay, uh, you have this flexibility, and it's good to have the flexibility uh, maybe for anyone, but at the same time, you want to regulate this flexibility. You don't want this to happen completely in the old wide west. 844-942-7866, or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132. We're talking about the, the new rules passed in Europe uh, for gig economy workers, 844-942-7866, or on Twitter, at BizRadio, B-I-Z Radio 132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. I think one of the things, though, to, to focus on for a second, Gad, is whether or not these rules 
being put in place, and, and as we mentioned, the governments have three years to really start to enforce them, of whether or not we will see some sort of impact in other parts of the world regarding gig economy workers because these types of rules are passed in Europe. And I go back to GDPR for a second, because a lot of people believe that once GDPR was passed, we were going to see kind of a more uniform thought process about security uh, and securing data on the Internet. So I'm not sure we're going to see that fast. The reason for that is that GDPR is a great example where if I'm Facebook and I implement it in one country, um, by by then I should probably implement it everywhere. I already implemented the, the cost is primarily the implementation. What we see with ride sharing is vastly different practices, even by the same firm across different states, across different cities. Even within the U.S., Uber is vastly different in San Francisco versus uh, Ohio and and very different in New York than in London. Uh, And so I don't see necessarily the firms, which is what we see with GDPR, firms taking the same approach across every place they they engage in. I do see, I will see, however, is cities probably like New York and San Francisco trying to copy some of that, right? New York is already was the first state to go, the first city to go and say, we mandate as the TLC, the, the taxi and limousine authority, uh, that drivers have to drive up to a certain level. And the only way to regulate, by the way, was to continuously aggregate the information across all different platforms to ensure that these drivers indeed don't work. So it requires significant reporting, required significant aggregation of information that has privacy implications, many other implications here. But I, I think we will see more states probably and more um, locations try to go and try to think about what's the right level of regulation. Maybe we'll see a little bit of more experimentation with what are really the negative implications because I think that's a bit why everybody's looking at New York now and mm-hmm. everybody's going to look at the EU what are the unintended consequences of that? Are we going to see people use multiple identities maybe to try to go on multiple platforms? Sure. Yeah. Right? Maybe what we saw with Amazon actually required the employees to use their own phone so I can actually see and track what you're doing when you're not on my platform. Right, right. So I think there are ne- many unintended consequences that I think everybody's will- willing to and interesting to see. Valeria? Well, um, so I agree that um, we won't have a, a, a probably the same... Uh, Brussels effect that we have for the GDPR. Uh, when it comes to employment regulation, this is much more national, and uh, and especially when it comes to offline work for companies like Uber and uh, or Deliveroo, uh, this will follow much more um, a national or even state uh, level. And even in the EU, I mean, the directive is not as stringent as the GDPR. Uh, so the rules that will uh, be approved by the different member states will probably uh, be a little bit different uh, from, uh, from member state to member state. I, I agree that uh, what could happen in the U.S. is that some states, some jurisdictions can pick on some of the innovative things in the, in, uh, in the directive, the possibility, of, for instance, of refusing a shift uh, if a certain notice period is not given or uh, the need to pay the worker anyway if a shift is cancelled. Uh, and no warning has been given to the worker. Now, this is something I can see some states in the United States too. Uh, I don't see the United States, um, especially at the federal level, uh, moving in the same direction. How prevalent is that issue of 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 a gig economy worker, Gad, having a a call to go do something and having that that uh, that 
that program, that process actually canceled? Actually, I would say it's pretty likely. Uh, I mean, likely, I mean, probably in the 5 to 10%, maybe right. slightly higher. Um, it's actually pretty common also the other way around, that a driver would cancel um, on, on a customer. And, and, but, but that's to some extent highlights really the main, in my opinion, why I'm, I think some of these rules are a little bit of a heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. Firms and platforms compete not only on customers. They compete also on the delivery people, sure. on the drivers. And we know that over time, the platforms that win are those that give better tools. And there are, in fact, there are more and more platforms that are platforms of platforms that help employees empl- uh, of these contractors compare across platforms. And so the platforms are going to be the ones that don't compensate. The ones that are going to be the one taking a, all of your tip rather than sharing the tip with you are yeah. going to be the ones that are going to lose over time. I think the role of the regulator here is to ensure that there is enough competition on the market, not only on the customer side, but only on the, also on the firm side, on, on the uh, contractor side. So if a firm is not reimbursing from, for a cancellation, then... No, ultimately, their contractors are not going to work for them. They're, these are drivers. Valerio, I find it interesting in terms of, uh, of the standards for hours for working to being able to, to qualify for this, that they, that they looked at it from two perspectives. One, people that work three hours a day, which we know is, is a, a high rate of, of workers in the gig economy, but they also made sure that they factored in over the month. Because of the fact that you may get somebody that may only be able to work one day a week or and then not be able to get back to it for two weeks time and then work two or three days and then again not come come back for for a period of two to three weeks that's I think that's an important distinction here yeah, so the point is uh, again as I was saying it's not just about the platform it's about a much broader uh, segment of the workforce that is contingent in uh, in Europe. And uh, yes, you have the situation in which people work uh, odd hours in a day and they may not work for the rest of the week and then they go and work for the same employer uh, odd hours in another day, in another week. So what the directive wants to avoid is that if you do that, and especially if the employer keeps you on this uh, very unstable schedule, which is also a possibility, um, they are not able to basically circumvent the rule uh, by um, by basically playing around on only one threshold. So you have uh, different thresholds to, to to qualify, and this is something that uh, is done to avoid the circumvention of the rule. I also noticed that in terms of the rules, they not only included people that are obviously working hours, they, they noted trainees and apprentices as well. Explain why that's uh, that's part of this process. Well, uh, this is because in many countries in Europe, trainees and apprenticeships uh, are, are basically considered to be employees. Right. And so uh, if you don't treat them uh, in the same way, um, you, uh, again, undermine the traineeship or the apprenticeship contract. In some countries, especially like Germany, for instance, uh, apprenticeship is very important. So for them, it's very important that their apprenticeship schemes are not undermined by unfair competition. How how much growth has there been, uh, Valerio, there in Europe uh, of gig economy jobs over the last few years? Well, certainly the problem is that we don't have rely on reliable numbers because the platforms don't share those numbers. It's very difficult to get a very clear picture. But certainly gig economy jobs are much more visible now in our, in our cities. In every major city in Europe, there's a, uh, there's a Uber, there's a, um, several food delivery platforms, and again, 
there's uh, a lot of people who work in our homes, uh, domestic workers, domestic helpers, cleaners, that are channeled through platforms. So I, I, I think that once this uh, movement of channeling work uh, through platforms started and, and basically in, it got traction with Uber, then it basically uh, sort of spilled off in many other sectors. So this is something that we probably see growing in the next few years, and certainly we've been seeing uh, growth uh, in the last uh, couple of years of, um, of this form of work. Gad, do you think at some point we are going to see, and, and obviously as these rules uh, kind of play themselves out, uh, and if we do see an increase in the number of people working in the gig economy and the numbers of hours that they work, uh, will we see some sort of push again to look at health care? As part of, of these types of jobs, exactly. I mean, I think I think we'll, we'll be in a situation where the major we might be in a situation thirty year, thirty forty years from now where the majority of the work is going to be done through what we call gig economy now, right. where what we see essentially is the reduction of transaction costs. So the entire notion of transaction cost economics is going away. Right. In which case, I might be working only twenty percent for you. So why would you supply healthcare for me? And sure. so I think it will definitely in the U.S. strengthen the debate. And the force around centralizing healthcare, or at least enabling that for every everyone. Valerio, has that uh, been brought up in Europe? Well, um, certainly. Again, the, the the idea that these forms of work can expand and can also uh, spill over many other sectors is it, it has been brought. It is again, as I said, uh, that the directive is not just about the gig economy; it's about a, a broader sector of the workforce. So we see a lot of people moving along sectors and industries in this uh, category of contingent work. They might work one day for a platform and they might work on another day on a very unstable schedule for a much much more traditional employer. So certainly uh, we expect to see uh, more of this happening in the future and that's why uh, the the EU institutions decided to regulate over this. Valerio, thank you very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Gad. Great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Gad alone from here at the Wharton School, Valerio Di Stefano at the University of Leuven in Belgium. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.